I just have always known that music is something that makes me really happy and music is something that symbolizes community to me and family and it's just like really integral to sort of my uh, my knowledge of what it is to sort of be alive. Hello there, dear friends. Pictish Trail here, trapped in lockdown on the Isle of Egg in the Hebrides of Scotland. It is quite nice being up here. I don't want to be too smug about it, but yeah, I've not been on the mainland for almost four months now. So I've missed out on the joys of wearing a face mask, endlessly queuing for things frantically trying to wrestle a 24-roll multi-pack of Andrex from the brittle grasp of a pensioner. I've seen some disturbing videos on Twitter. I've missed out on all that. Still, I'm managing to survive and I hope you are too. Let's not get bogged down, bog-rolled down and all of that. This is episode three of our second series of the Lost Map podcast. Okay, admittedly, it's quite an irregular podcast series. Don't judge me, I've got kids been up since 5 a.m. This podcast is centered around our artist residency project, Visitations. Visitations. Oh, love that sting. In which we invite musicians over to the Isle of Egg to write and record new music in solitude in a bothy. It's like a Scottish cottage which we then release on vinyl via a subscription service on the Lost Map website. Hopefully you'll know some of this information already. If not, you might want to check out the teaser podcast in this series, which is only five minutes long and it's got some info and all of that. You can also go to lostmap.com forward slash visitations. Subscribers to Series 2 should hopefully have received their copies of the first record in their new subscription, which was by the LA collective Arthur King. The previous two episodes of this podcast were an interview with various members of that band, including Jason Lytle of Grandaddy fame. Yeah. Today's episode is an interview with another hero of mine, an exceptionally prolific songwriter and one of my all-time favourite guitarists, Rachel Ags. Rachel performs post-punk with her collaborative projects Trash Kit, Shopping and Sacred Paws. She's been a mainstay and a a real galvanising force within the UK's DIY scene over the past 10 years, recording and touring non-stop, it seems. She's been involved with Decolonise Fest in London, created zines and coordinated workshops to encourage women, non-binary people and people of colour to form bands. Uh, well, she moved to Glasgow a few years ago, so she's Scottish now, in a little Scottish cottage. And her band, Sacred Paws, picked up the Scottish Album of the Year in 2017 for their debut album, Strike a Match. Rachel's been to Egg 
a number of times before. She performed at our Howling Fling Festival with Trash Kit and Sacred Paws. She came up to Egg on her own for our visitations project in August of 2019. So quite a while ago now. Sorry, it's taken a while to catch up. You're going to hear the music that she created during that time over the course of the next two episodes. In this episode specifically, we're going to get a bit of background on Rachel, what drew her to music, how she made her start in bands, and what she makes of the current scene. As with the previous two episodes, we've recorded this interview remotely. I sent Rachel a bunch of questions and she graciously took the time to answer them in depth. In an ideal world, I'd like to do these chats in person, but given the lockdown and the fact that the previous two episodes in this series have been recorded remotely, I figured it'd be nice to have a bit of continuity and also it's more of a relaxed vibe. Vibe. Uh, As I'm sure I've said before, I just find Skype conversations a bit stilted and I... I always find that I just end up talking over people. <laughs> so this is a, this is a better format, I feel. So let's hear from Rachel. She's going to tell us right now where she's at. I'm Rachel Ags. And I am recording this from my home in Glasgow, Southside. I'm in my music room right now. This is the first place I've ever lived where I actually have a room to do music in that's not a bedroom. Uh, So it's really cool. Uh, It's really, really nice. I miss playing music with people. Um, You know, I can't make, it's not a practice space, I can't jam with friends which I really miss doing like drum having drums and stuff but um I am making a bit of music on my own and that's definitely largely inspired by my time on egg and just the sort of encouragement um of that whole experience is sort of very um liberating and and yeah, sort of inspiring. And, and although I'm finding lockdown extremely uninspiring, <laughs> I at least, the potential's there. I've got I've got all my stuff set up and I have been pottering about in a way that, you know, maybe I won't play anyone the things I'm making, but I am sort of getting something out of it anyway, just, just as a process, something to keep doing, I guess. So that's Rachel Ags there. Hello, Rachel. With this podcast, I'm always interested to find out how artists made their start in music, what their early experiences were. Um, Just so you know, I've been taking a note of each answer and I'll be comparing them all in a bumper episode at the end of the final season in 2025. So yeah, true to form, I asked Rachel about that. Growing up, was there any specific records or artists that informed her path to becoming a musician? How did it all start? I, I've been playing music since I was actually really, since I was born, basically. Um, I can't remember a time when I didn't play music, which is really nice. And I know I'm very lucky in that I grew up in an extremely musical household. My dad was playing guitar and then later he learned the banjo and um, I would play with him when I was really, really small. And he, they would have, my parents would have parties where all of their friends would come and all their friends play music. It's just always been something that, I guess I assumed everyone did, um, but um, I would join in when I was really young and stay up 
past my bedtime and play violin, play fiddle with them. Just like folk music, Celtic stuff, English stuff. My dad, when he learned the banjo, my mum also learned the double bass. So we play in a little band together. That was a sort of later development, but we play more like old time American Appalachian music. I didn't play guitar when I was a kid. I, I had lessons in violin and piano, but it wasn't, you know, if you play those instruments, you generally don't get into playing in punk bands. I mean, there's some really great punk bands with violin in them, but I didn't know about them at that time. For like a young female queer person growing up back in school, it wasn't, it wasn't massively welcoming to play in a band at that age. So I, it was really when I discovered sort of queer core bands, riot girl bands, like Bratmobile, Bikini Kill, that sort of thing. And, and actually La Tigre and like Electrolane, those bands were really sort of happening, <laughs> happening. Uh, they, were, they were putting out records um, when I was in school. And I remember sort of discovering them through Plan B and music magazines and stuff and, and going online and endlessly downloading music. And that was like, that was the real catalyst for me. I think because I was queer and very closeted in school and even in by the time I went to university, like I just really needed that. I was desperately looking for a sense of community. And um, it was like, yeah, it was like somebody opening a window or a door. <laughs> and I, I was able to sort of find my people through starting to play music. In the life of a musician, there's often a tipping point, a moment where the hobby becomes an occupation. This happened for me, actually, when I moved to Cellardyke in Fife and signed on the dole. <laughs> All of a sudden, pew, I was a full-time musician. I've made it, Daddy. Mm, doesn't always work out like that. Right enough, and I guess you don't always make a conscious decision. Sometimes it just happens. I don't think I thought it would be my job. That didn't occur to me at all. I just really wanted to do it. But I think also when I, when you're that age, you don't really understand. <laughs> you see bands playing and you think it's everyone. You're like, yeah, surely that's their job. They just go around playing these shows to like 10 people and that, that's all they have to do. But then you realise... You, you, <laughs> you've got to have several jobs if you want to do that yeah I don't know I, I just have always known that music is something that makes me really happy and music is something that symbolises community to me and family and it's just like really integral to sort of my, uh, my knowledge of what it is to sort of be alive so I, it wasn't about thinking oh this is my career or this is my dream it was more like this is a sort of way of existing and surviving in the world that I think is going to be really helpful. I've been a fan of Rachel's music for a while now. Rosie Plain introduced me to the world of Trash Kit, I first saw them play a gig in Bristol back in 2010 
and I bought the album immediately after seeing them play. They were amazing. Uh, I described the entirety of Rachel's output as post-punk earlier on, but yeah, like most genre names, doesn't really do it justice. Trash Kit are an incredible band and real proof of the power of electric guitar, bass and drums, the infinite possibilities that that primal setup can bring. Although there's often other instruments on their albums, the core is always that guitar, bass and drums setup, especially live. In fact, when they started, they were just guitar and drums. It was Rachel Ags on guitar, accompanied on drums by her friend Rachel Horwood. Yes, another Rachel. Lost Map fans might recognise Rachel Horwood from her other work as one half of the synth prog band Bamboo. They played Howlin' Fling last year. And Rachel Horwood's also a member of Bassian and Rosie Plain's live band. Anyway, the two Rachels, keep up, had a twee folk band called The Madrigals before they mutated into Trash Kit. So Trash Kit, we started, it's debatable, the end of 2008, I think, is when we started, but basically 2009. We put out our first record in 2010. But yeah, we pl- me and Rachel played in a different band before Trash Kit. Um, that was called The Madrigals, and it was a very twee, um, sort of anti-folk band. I played fiddle and mandolin, and, you know, there was glockenspiels and whistling involved. <laughs> you, know what I mean. you know what I mean, the kind of thing that a lot of people were doing in 2005 or whatever. But we did that for a bit, and we loved it. But I think we, me and Rachel, knew that we wanted to do something that was a bit more bit noisier a lot noisier Rachel wanted to play drums I was learning electric guitar I'd played acoustic guitar a bit um when I was just you know picking up my dad's guitar at home and stuff but I wasn't I never like knew how to play I didn't know any chords or whatever I was just like finger picking and stuff but um I got a an electric guitar I guess it was well yeah probably that year um, like 2008 I started really trying to learn practicing all the time and just yeah just really quickly became obsessed (laughs) with it and it was key to meeting Rachel Horwood who plays drums in Trash Kit uh, because I already knew she was an amazing musician and we had like a really good chemistry as friends and but also as sort of collaborators she has an amazing ear and just made making music this really fun experience it felt like anything was possible and so when she started playing uh, learning the drums as well it was like wow like she played drums in such a weird way <laughs> it was instantly really exciting and we lived in the same house and our bedrooms were like right next to each other so we just set up the drum kit and like a, my tiny guitar amp and make music and we'd record stuff in like one take and just put it straight on my space <laughs> so that's yeah that's like how I got my first ever proper gig in a band well actually no the Madrigals had played proper gigs I suppose with like songs that I, me and Rachel had written the person who gave us that gig was Andrew Milk who plays drums in Shopping which is another band that I play in and yeah he was living in a warehouse in London and yeah he found our music on MySpace which is how you did things in 
2009. Yeah, I'm, and it's funny because at that gig were so many people that I now would call friends and are pl still playing music and are very sort of involved in a punk scene or DIY community, whatever you want to call it. So that was like a really really fun moment and like we were so cocky as well we just it was our first gig and we no one wanted to play um last because it's just like not punk to want to you know headline but me and Rachel were like so um excited we were like yeah we'll play we'll go last because we're gonna be the best anyway <laughs> and we, we were pretty bad like I, I there were so many sections in our songs that were just sort of improvised because we just had so much energy it was like I just remember this kind of hyperactiveness that meant we actually never finished anything but I think that was probably part of what it made it fun what made it fun to watch I don't know well when I saw them in 2010 they'd obviously got a lot better they were accompanied on stage at that point by their bass player Ros Murray from the band Electrolane the band have made three albums with 2019's Horizon being the most recent and uh, that's my personal favourite of theirs. Slight lineup change, Jill Partington's on bass now, and their sound has evolved into this often quite psychedelic, transportive place. To the sky, the horizon, looking back, best foot Their individual styles are so unique, they've developed a collaborative sound that is truly their own and distinct even from Rachel Ags's other bands. Speaking of which, Rachel has already mentioned her friendship with Andrew Milk, with whom she formed the band Shopping. They've made four albums together, accompanied by their pal Billy Easter on bass. You're holding your breath. It's a particular kind of stress. You have a razor sharp tongue. Shopping came about through like just hanging out in London with Andrew and a bunch of other people. We started a band called Cover Girl and that was like a crazy party band, very disorganised, chaotic project, but really fun. And that morphed into, into shopping. And then around the same time, I was just playing in loads of bands <laughs> at this point. There, there was a lot going on and I joined a band called Golden Girls, which was Ailey Rogers, who I play with in Sacred Pause. And she was in that band. Uh, Rory from that band was living in London, asked me to sort of join temporarily to just like fill in on guitar because their um, guitarist had left. And so I joined that band. That was really fun. I learned loads about playing guitar through that because at that point I was still just I'd never learned anyone else's music on the guitar. I was just playing my own stuff. So it was really good, taught me a lot. Just forcing myself to learn someone else's parts was really cool. So we, yeah, we did that. We went on tour a bunch. And then me and Ailey, we, we became friends and we just started talking about music loads and realising that we had really similar taste in music, but weirdly not. Golden Girls was very indie pop and weirdly not that we would talk about every other kind of music so kind of similar to when when me and Rachel decided to sort of we wanted to do some some heavier music that was kind of similar with me and Ailey we wanted to do something specifically related to 
all of the kind of more slightly more experimental but I guess just like African music pop music folk music roots and um, whatever you want to call it just this kind of music that we were listening to and bonding over we really wanted to do something specifically along those lines and we also just wanted to hang out more and although I was still living in London she was in Glasgow it was like <laughs> I would commute on the megabus which is insane but I would and it was just because we wanted to spend time together and you kind of need an excuse if you live that far away <laughs> you can't just travel up well I can't anyway I think my main way of socializing with people is through doing projects doing bands and so yeah that's that's sort of why we did that quite a thorough history of Rachel Ag's bands there, I'm sure you'll agree, but uh, a nice introduction. I'd heartily recommend checking out all of Trash Kit's records, all of Sacred Paws' albums, all the shopping albums. They've each got this undeniable energy, this boundless, infectious sense of enthusiasm about them. There's plenty to enjoy there. I don't know what this old bloody chipper about. Let me tell you, the world's gone to shit since Bowie died. I don't know why I did that. This music is the perfect tonic for these times, pure melodic sunshine escapism. And it's the reason I love Rachel's music so much. So as a fan, I was delighted when she said she wanted to take part in our visitations project. And as an extra bonus, it wasn't going to be the longest journey in the world for her to have to make because she currently lives in Glasgow. Having been at the epicentre of the DIY scene in London, Rachel got all her stuff and moved up to Glasgow a few years ago. She's a Ouija! Um, oh God. I asked her what prompted the move and how things differed, how her life differed from that in London. Because I did that crazy commuting thing with, with Sacred Pause for so long, I kind of felt like I already lived here for a long time before actually moving. And people would, people in London start saying, oh, haven't you moved to Glasgow? And people up here were like, oh, I thought you lived here. So it just felt like the universe was telling me to move. So I did. The music scene here is brilliant, obviously. We all know that, I'm sure. But I think another thing is definitely that it's, cheaper the rent's cheaper I can't get around that that is a huge reason that I moved because I just felt like I was paying the same amount that I am now for you know sharing a flat with just my partner you know in London I was paying the same amount for a tiny room and yeah like I said I've got a room where I can play music and shut the door and it's just I feel very lucky but it also feels like it was it was a worthwhile sort of transition I miss London in, in the sense that just the kind of craziness of it and the feeling of anonymity walking down the street just because there's so many people. I do miss that. But then in Glasgow, the plus side is you bump into your friends a lot and that's very nice in its own way. And that, yeah, the sense of community here is genuinely, it's very supportive. It feels accessible, welcoming. And I just think that's that's kind of what you need when, you, when you're trying to do music, especially if you you want to do it sort of, full time or you you want to try and make it 
work financially London is really hard I can see why you might want to be like younger in London and just you know playing gigs constantly and going out all the time but (laughs) that's kind of not what I want to do I want to like work on actually building relationships that that I think are positive and like getting the most out of you know the music that I'm making. As I mentioned earlier, with her self-published scenes and workshops, Rachel has been a really active voice in promoting diversity within the UK's DIY scene over the past decade. She's performed at and been involved with Decolonize Fest, a London event which gives a stage and platform for people of colour who are in punk and alternative bands, and for those who aspire to be. In the wake of the current resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and the music industry in quotation marks taking credit for hashtag Blackout Tuesday, I was keen to hear Rachel's thoughts on visibility, specifically of people of colour in our DIY indie scene. I, for me, it's I am a brown queer person. I grew up in the countryside in a very like white straight environment. So I, for me, it's the whole kind of issue of visibility is just really personal to me. I I don't feel like I could do music and not mention all of the sort of otherness that I experience in my life. It's just very, very much part of who I am. Maybe for some people it just really isn't an issue and I'd, I'd think that's fine. But, um, you know, I'm the thing that got me into music is was Queercore, was Riot Girl, was music that is explicitly political um, and also you know, personally political, but also genuinely political. I think about it, but I don't think about it because it's like so innate to me that everything I do kind of is political just for existing, through do, through making music, it kind of is an act of sort of rebellion in a way because you feel like the world is telling you, you know, to feel alone or to feel ashamed. And uh, like getting on stage is really like, it's a bit of a battle sometimes, or it was when I was younger, definitely. And it was something that really helped me feel like I had a community and feel like I had pride in myself. It's really integral to what I do because I want to be somebody that, even if just one person was to happen to see me on stage and felt like because they'd seen someone that looked like them or was just, you know, weird like them, (laughs) that that might inspire them to make their own music. And that has, people have told me that and it, it really is like everything. It's really, really important. And, you know, just visibility is key. I think because when I when I started making music it was like I was looking around thinking oh well I guess we've got polystyrene (laughs) you know from the past (laughs) and just not very many other people that were playing music that were not white so yeah it's it's key it's really key in terms of what the music industry can do and how you know we all respond to this current moment I don't know (laughs) I think for me the key is giving people of colour the voice and, and listening. I think the blackout thing was a little bit weird because uh, it was just, I switched on my phone and it's just all these black squares. It just kind of feels like a bit of a non-moment. But I do 
think there's so many positive things happening right now. We've got Decolonize Fest in London, in case anyone doesn't know, is a festival by and for people of colour. And it's really, really exciting. It's the first time I've lived. I lived in London for 10 years and nothing like that ever happened <laughs> that entire time. We had tons of lady fests and we had queer fests, but we didn't have any festivals dedicated to people of colour. So I really think that is something that I hold on to as like a beacon of change. And I know that people, they've got bands like Big Joni, who are also involved in organising that festival. I know that there's young people already who are looking up to them, inspired by them and starting bands. And I think that's kind of the most we can do is like just encourage each other. And, and also we've been doing that. Like black and brown people in the music industry have been doing that for the last decade that I've been doing music. You have to because there's not very many of us. So if you see someone like a brown person making music that you like, you're going to write to them or, you know, you're going to meet up at shows and that's just been happening low level not very many of us but you know hopefully it'll build and build and that's that's how you change things and we've seen that through inclusivity in the rest of punk like you know queer punk lady fest that sort of vein uh, that's how you change things is you just hold each other up and you have people on stage being visibly black being visibly queer whatever I'm really talking about my or our specific corner of the music industry, like indie, punk, whatever this is. Because <laughs> that's that's my own experience. I mean, there's problems with the music industry that go beyond race, basically, <laughs> uh, that we could be talking about for hours. So I think, yeah, I'm just talking about like our scene, which is often very DIY. It's like people changing stuff themselves. Um, and it is a very white scene, but I think like, there's definitely the power to change things. So let's do it. Powerful stuff. I think that's a good place to leave it just now. Hopefully this episode's given you a taste of what Rachel's about and a feel for her music. In our next episode, in a few weeks' time, we'll hear from Rachel about her time spent on the island and the music she's created for our Visitations project, which is totally excellent, by the way. Very excited for you all to hear her songs. Again, you can find out more information about Visitations and how to sign up for the digital or vinyl subscription sets by going to lostmap.com forward slash visitations. If you're enjoying this podcast, it's a nice way to support what we're doing. You'll have heard some excerpts from Rachel's Visitations release throughout this episode already, and I'll leave you with a full track from that release right now. It's a song called Be The One. See you next time. Today go.